Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We've got another pretty lengthy chapter that we're going to split up. So this first episode is just going to have the first half and we'll be finishing it off next week. We also have some content warnings. This chapter is explicitly about rape and will also involve lynchings pretty frequently. Both of those are going to come up regularly. So with that said, let's get started. Chapter 11. Rape, Racism, and the Myth of the Black Rapist Some of the most flagrant symptoms of social deterioration are acknowledged as serious problems only when they have assumed such epidemic proportions that they appear to defy solution. Rape is a case in point. In the United States today, it is one of the fastest growing violent crimes. Footnote 1. After ages of silence, suffering, and misplaced guilt, sexual assault is explosively emerging as one of the telling dysfunctions of present-day capitalist society. The rising public concern about rape in the United States has inspired countless numbers of women to divulge their past encounters with actual or would-be assailants. As a result, an awesome fact has come to light. Appallingly few women can claim that they have not been victims, at one time in their lives, of either attempted or accomplished sexual attacks. In the United States and other capitalist countries, rape laws as a rule were framed originally for the protection of men of the upper classes whose daughters and wives might be assaulted. What happens to working class women has usually been of little concern to the courts. As a result, remarkably few white men have been prosecuted for the sexual violence they have inflicted on these women. While the rapists have seldom been brought to justice, the rape charge has been indiscriminately aimed at black men, the guilty and innocent alike. Thus, of the 455 men executed between 1930 and 1967 on the basis of rape convictions, 405 of them were black. Footnote 2. In the history of the United States, the fraudulent rape charge stands out as one of the most formidable artifices invented by racism. The myth of the black rapist has been methodically conjured up whenever recurrent waves of violence and terror against the black community have required convincing justifications. If black women have been conspicuously absent from the ranks of the contemporary anti-rape movement, it may be due, in part, to that movement's indifferent posture toward the frame-up rape charge as an incitement to racist aggression. Too many innocents have been offered sacrificially to gas chambers and lifers' cells for black women to join those who often seek relief from policemen and judges. Moreover, as rape victims themselves, they have found little if any sympathy from these men in uniforms and robes, and stories about police assaults on black women, rape victims sometimes suffering a second rape, are heard too frequently to be dismissed as aberrations. Quote, even at the strongest time of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, for example, young activists often stated that nothing could protect black women from being raped by Birmingham police. As recently as December 1974 in Chicago, a 17-year-old black woman reported that she was gang-raped by 10 policemen. Some of the men were suspended, but ultimately, the whole thing was swept under the rug. Footnote 3 During the early stages of the contemporary anti-rape movement, 
Few feminist theorists seriously analyzed the special circumstances surrounding the black woman as a rape victim. The historical not binding black women, systematically abused and violated by white men, to black men, maimed and murdered because of the racist manipulation of their rape charge, has just begun to be acknowledged to any significant extent. Whenever black women have challenged rape, they usually and simultaneously expose the use of the frame-up rape charge as a deadly racist weapon against their men. As one extremely perceptive writer put it, quote, The myth of the black rapist of white women is the twin of the myth of the bad black woman, both designed to apologize for and facilitate the continued exploitation of black men and women. Black women perceived this connection very clearly and were early in the forefront of the fight against lynching. End quote. Footnote 4. Gerda Lerner, the author of this passage, is one of the few white women writing on the subject of rape during the early 1970s who examined in depth the combined effect of racism and sexism on black women. The case of Joan Little, footnote 5, tried during the summer of 1975, illustrated Lerner's point. Brought to trial on murder charges, the young black woman was accused of killing a white guard in North Carolina jail, where she was the only woman inmate. When Joan Little took the stand, she told how the guard had raped her in her cell and how she had killed him in self-defense with the ice pick he had used to threaten her. Throughout the country, her cause was passionately supported by individuals and organizations in the black community and within the young women's movement and her acquittal was hailed as an important victory made possible by this mass campaign. In the immediate aftermath of her acquittal, Mrs. Little issued several moving appeals on behalf of a black man named Delbert Tibbs, who awaited execution in Florida because he had been falsely convicted of raping a white woman. Many black women answered Joan Little's appeal to support the case of Delbert Tibbs, but few white women, and certainly few organized groups within the anti-rape movement followed her suggestion that they agitate for the freedom of this black man who had been blatantly victimized by Southern racism. Not even when Little's chief counsel, Jerry Paul, announced his decision to represent Delbert Tibbs, did many white women dare to stand up in his defense. By 1978, however, when all charges against Tibbs were dismissed, white anti-rape activists had increasingly begun to align themselves with his cause. Their initial reluctance, however, was one of the historical episodes confirming many black women's suspicion that the anti-rape movement was largely oblivious to their special concerns. That black women have not joined the anti-rape movement en masse does not therefore mean that they oppose anti-rape measures in general. Before the end of the 19th century, pioneering black club women conducted one of the very first organized protests against sexual abuse. Their 80-year-old tradition of organized struggle against rape reflects the extensive and exaggerated ways black women have suffered the threat of sexual violence. One of racism's salient historical features has always been the assumption that white men, especially those who wield economic power, possess an incontestable right of access to black women's bodies. Slavery relied as much on routine sexual abuse as it relied on the whip and the lash. Excessive sex urges, whether they existed among individual white men or not, had nothing to do with this virtual institutionalization of rape. Sexual coercion was, rather, an essential dimension of the social relations between slave master and slave. In other words, 
the right claimed by slave owners and their agents over the bodies of female slaves was a direct expression of their presumed property rights over black people as a whole. The license to rape emanated from and facilitated the ruthless economic domination that was the gruesome hallmark of slavery. Footnote 6. The pattern of institutionalized sexual abuse of black women became so powerful that it managed to survive the abolition of slavery. Group rape, perpetuated by the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist organizations of the post-Civil War period, became an uncamouflaged political weapon in the drive to thwart the movement for black equality. During the Memphis Riot of 1866, for example, the violence of the mob martyrs was brutally complemented by the concerted sexual attacks on black women. In the riot's aftermath, numerous black women testified before a congressional committee about the savage mob rapes they had suffered. Footnote 7. This testimony regarding similar events during the Meridian, Mississippi riot of 1871 was given by a black woman named Ellen Parton. Quote, I reside in Meridian, have resided here nine years, occupation, washing and ironing and scouring, Wednesday night was the last night they came to my house. By they, I mean bodies or companies of men. They came on Tuesday, Wednesday, they came on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. On Monday night, they said they came to do us no harm. On Tuesday night, they said they came for the arms. I told them there was none, and they said they would take my word for it. On Wednesday night, they came and broke open the wardrobe and trunks and committed rape upon me. There were eight of them in the house. I do not know how many there were outside. End quote. Footnote 8. Of course, the sexual abuse of black women has not always manifested itself in such open and political violence. There has been a daily drama of racism enacted in the countless anonymous encounters between black women and their white abusers. Men convinced that their acts were only natural. Such assaults have been ideologically sanctioned by politicians, scholars, and journalists and by literary artists who have often portrayed black women as promiscuous and immoral. Even the outstanding writer Gertrude Stein described one of her black women characters as possessing quote, the simple promiscuous unmorality of the black people, end quote. Footnote 9. The imposition of this attitude on the white men of the working class was a triumphant moment in the development of racist ideology. Racism has always drawn strength from its ability to encourage sexual coercion, while black women and their sisters of color have been the main targets of these racist-inspired attacks, white women have suffered as well. For once white men were persuaded that they could commit sexual acts against black women with impunity, their conduct towards women of their own race could not have remained unmarred. Racism has always served as a provocation to rape, and white women in the United States have necessarily suffered the ricochet fire of these attacks. This is one of the many ways in which racism nourishes sexism, causing white women to be indirectly victimized by the special oppression aimed at their sisters of color. The experience of the Vietnam War furnished a further example to the extent to which racism could function as a provocation to rape. Because it was drummed into the heads of US soldiers that they were fighting an inferior race, they could be taught that raping Vietnamese women was a necessary military duty. They could even be instructed to search the women with their penises. Footnote 10. It was the unwritten policy of the US military command to systemically encourage rape, since it was an extremely effective weapon of mass terrorism. Where are the thousands upon thousands of Vietnam veterans who witnessed and participated in these horrors? 
To what extent did those brutal experiences affect their attitudes towards women in general? While it would be quite erroneous to single out Vietnam veterans as the main perpetuators of sexual crimes, there can be little doubt that the horrendous repercussions of the Vietnam experience are still being felt by all women in the United States today. It is a painful irony that some anti-rape theorists, who ignore the part played by racism in instigating rape, do not hesitate to argue that men of color are especially prone to commit sexual violence against women. In her very impressive study of rape, Susan Brandmiller claims that black men's historical oppression has placed many of the legitimate expressions of male supremacy beyond their reach. They must resort, as a result, to acts of open sexual violence. In her portrayal of ghetto inhabitants, Brandmiller insists that, quote, Corporate executive dining rooms and climbs up Mount Everest are not usually accessible to those who form the subculture of violence. Access to a female body, through force, is within their ken. End quote, footnote 11. When Brandmiller's book, Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape, was published, it was effusively praised in some circles. Time magazine, which selected her as one of its Women of the Year in 1976, described the book as, quote, the most rigorous and provocative piece of scholarship that has yet emerged from the feminist movement. End quote. Footnote 12. In other circles, however, the book has been severely criticized for its part in the resuscitation of the old racist myth of the black rapist. It cannot be denied that Branmilly's book is a pioneering scholarly contribution to the contemporary literature on rape, yet many of her arguments are unfortunately pervaded with racist ideas. Characteristic of that perspective is her reinterpretation of the 1953 lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till. After this young boy had whistled at a white woman in Mississippi, his maimed body was found at the bottom of the Tallahatchie River. Quote, Till's action, said Bran Miller, was more than a kid's brash prank. Footnote 13. Emmett Till was going to show his black buddies that he, and by inference, they, could get a white woman, and Carolyn Bryant was the nearest convenient object. In concrete terms, the accessibility of all white women was on review. And what of the wolf whistle? Till's gesture of adolescent bravado? The whistle was no small tweet of hubba hubba, or melodious approval for a well-turned ankle. It was a deliberate insult, just short of physical assault. A last reminder to Carolyn Bryant that this black boy, Till, had in mind to possess her. End quote. Footnote 14. While Bran Miller deplores the sadistic punishment inflicted on Emmett Till, the black youth emerges, nonetheless, as a guilty sexist, almost as guilty as his white racist murderers. After all, she argues, both Till and his murderers were exclusively concerned about their rights of possession over women. Unfortunately, Brad Miller is not the only contemporary writer on rape who has suffered the influence of racist ideology. According to Jean McKellar, in her book Rape, The Bait and the Trap, quote, Blacks raised in the hard life of the ghetto learn that they can get what they want only by seizing it. Violence is the rule in the game for survival. Women are fair prey. To obtain a woman, one subdues her. End quote. Footnote 15. McKellar has been so completely mesmerized by racist propaganda that she makes the unabashed claim that 90% of all reported rapes in the United States are committed by black men. Footnote 16. 
Inasmuch as the FBI's corresponding figure is 47%, footnote 17, it is difficult to believe that McKellie's statement is not an intentional provocation. Most recent studies on rape in the United States have acknowledged the disparity between the actual incidents of sexual assaults and those which are reported to the police. According to Susan Brandmiller, for example, reported rapes range anywhere from 1 in 5 to 1 in 20. Footnote 18. A study published by the New York Radical Feminists concluded that reported rapes run as low as 5%. Footnote 19. In much of the contemporary literature on rape, there is nevertheless a tendency to equate the police blotter rapist with the typical rapist. If this pattern persists, it will be practically impossible to uncover the real social causes of rape. Diana Russell's Politics of Rape unfortunately reinforces the current notion that the typical rapist is a man of colour, or, if he is white, a poor or working class man. Subtitled The Victim's Perspective, her book is based on a series of interviews with rape victims in the San Francisco Bay Area. Of the 22 cases she describes, 12, i.e. more than half, involve women who've been raped by black, Chicano, or Native American Indian men. It is revealing that only 26% of the original 95 interviewees she conducted involved men of color. Footnote 20. If this dubious process of selection is not enough to evoke deep suspicions of racism, consider the advice she offers to white women. Quote, If some black men see rape of white women as an act of revenge, or as a justifiable expression of hostility towards whites, I think it is equally realistic for white women to be less trusting of black men than many of them are. End quote. Footnote 21. Brand Miller, McKellar, and Russell are assuredly more subtle than earlier ideologues of racism, but their conclusions tragically beg comparison with the ideas of such scholarly apologists of racism as Winfield Collins, who published in 1918 a book entitled The Truth About Lynching and the Negro in the South, in which the author pleads that the South be made safe for the white race. Quote, Two of the Negro's most prominent characteristics are the utter lack of chastity and complete ignorance of veracity. The Negro's sexual laxity, considered so immoral or even criminal in the white man's civilization, may have been all but a virtue in the habitat of his origin. There, nature developed in him intense sexual passions to offset his high death rate. End quote. Footnote 22. Collins resorts to pseudo-biological arguments, while Brandmiller, Russell, and McKellar invoke environmental explanations. But in the final analysis, they all assert that black men are motivated in especially powerful ways to commit sexual violence against women. One of the earliest theoretical works associated with the contemporary feminist movement that dealt with the subject of rape and race was Shulamith Firestone's The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. Racism in general, so Firestone claims, is actually an extension of sexism, invoking the biblical notion that the races are no more than the various parents and siblings of the family of man. Footnote 23. She develops a construct defining the white man as father, the white woman as wife and mother, and black people as the children. Transposing Freud's theory of the Oedipus complex into racial terms, Firestone implies that black men harbour an uncontrollable desire for sexual relations with white women. They want to kill the father and sleep with the mother. Footnote 24. Moreover, in order to 
be a man, the black man must, quote, untie himself from his bond with the white female, relating to her, if at all, only in a degrading way. In addition, due to his virulent hatred and jealousy of her possessor, the white man, he may lust after her as a thing to be conquered in order to revenge himself on the white man. End quote. Footnote 25. Like Brandmiller, McKellar, and Russell, Firestone succumbs to the old racist sophistry of blaming the victim. Whether innocently or consciously, their pronouncements have facilitated the resurrection of the time-worn myth of the black rapist. Their historical myopia further prevents them from comprehending that the portrayal of black men as rapists reinforces racism's open invitation to white men to avail themselves sexually of black women's bodies. The fictional image of the black man as rapist has always strengthened its inseparable companion. The image of the woman as chronically promiscuous. For once the notion is accepted that the black men harbour irresistible and animal-like sexual urges, the entire race is invested with bestiality. If black men have their eyes on white women as sexual objects, then black women must certainly welcome the sexual attentions of white men. Viewed as loose women and whores, black women's cries of rape would necessarily lack legitimacy. During the 1920s, a well-known Southern politician declared that there was no such thing as a virtuous colored girl over the age of 14. Footnote 26. As it turns out, this white man had two families, one by his white wife and another by a black woman. Walter White, an outstanding anti-lynching leader and executive secretary of the NAACP, rightfully accused this man of, quote, explaining and excusing his own moral derelictions by emphasizing the immorality of women of the inferior race, end quote, footnote 27. A contemporary black writer, Calvin Herndon, unfortunately succumbs to similar falsehood about black women. In the study Sex and Racism, he insists that the Negro woman during slavery began to develop a depreciatory concept of herself, not only as a female, but as a human being as well. Footnote 28. According to Harrington's analysis, quote, After experiencing the ceaseless sexual immorality of the white South, the Negro woman became promiscuous and loose, and could be had for the taking. Indeed, she came to look upon herself as the South viewed and treated her, for she had no other morality by which to shape her womanhood. End quote. Footnote 29. Herrington's analysis never penetrates the ideological veil which has resulted in the minimizing of the sexual outrages constantly committed against black women. He falls into the trap of blaming the victim for the savage punishment she was historically forced to endure. Throughout the history of this country, black women have manifested a collective consciousness of their sexual victimization. They have also understood that they could not adequately resist the sexual abuses they suffered without simultaneously attacking the fraudulent rape charge as a pretext for lynching. The reliance on rape as an instrument of white supremacist terror predates by several centuries the institution of lynching. During slavery, the lynching of black people did not occur extensively, for the simple reason that slave owners were reluctant to destroy their valuable property. Flogging, yes. But lynching, no. Together with flogging, rape was a terribly efficient method of keeping black women and men alike in check. It was a routine arm of repression. Lynchings did occur before the Civil War, 
but they were aimed more often at white abolitionists, who had no cash value on the market. According to William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator, over 300 white people were lynched over the two decades following 1836. Footnote 30. The incidence of lynchings climbed as the anti-slavery campaign gained in power and influence. Quote, as the slaveholders saw the fight going against them, despite their desperate struggle to check these forces, they more and more resorted to the rope and the F-slur. End quote. Footnote 31. As Walter White concludes, the lyncher entered upon the scene as a stalwart defender of the slave owner's profits. End quote. Footnote 32. With the emancipation of the slaves, black people no longer possessed a market value for the former slaveholders. And the lynching industry was revolutionized. Footnote 33. When Ida B. Wells researched her first pamphlet against lynching, published in 1895 under the title A Red Record, she calculated that over 10,000 lynchings had taken place between 1865 and 1895. Not all, nor nearly all, of the murders done by white men during the past 30 years have come to light. But the statistics as gathered and preserved by white men, and which have not been questioned, show that during these years, more than 10,000 Negroes have been killed in cold blood, without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution. And yet, as evidence of the absolute impunity with which the white man dares to kill a Negro, the same record shows that during all these years, and for all these murders, only three white men have been tried, convicted, and executed. As no white man has been lynched for the murder of coloured people, these three executions are the only instances of the death penalty being visited upon white men for murdering Negroes. End quote. Footnote 34. In connection with these lynchings and their countless barbarities, the myth of the black rapist was conjured up. It could only acquire its terrible powers of persuasion within the irrational world of racist ideology. However irrational the myth may be, it was not a spontaneous aberration. On the contrary, the myth of the black rapist was a distinctly political invention. As Frederick Douglass points out, Black men were not only indiscriminately labelled as rapists during slavery. Throughout the Civil War, in fact, not a single black man was publicly accused of raping a white woman. As Frederick Douglass points out, black men were not indiscriminately labelled as rapists during slavery. Throughout the entire Civil War, in fact, not a single black man was publicly accused of raping a white woman. Footnote 35. If black men possessed an animalistic urge to rape, argued Douglas, this alleged rape instinct would have certainly been activated when white women were left unprotected by their men who were fighting in the Confederate army. In the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the menacing specter of the black rapist had not yet appeared on the historical scene, but lynchings, reserved during slavery for the white abolitionists, were proving to be a valuable political weapon. Before lynching could be consolidated as a popularly accepted institution, however, its savagery and its horrors had to be convincingly justified. These were the circumstances which spawned the myth of the black rapist, for the rape charge turned out to be the most powerful of several attempts to justify the lynching of black people. The institution of lynching, in turn complemented by the continued rape of black women, became an essential ingredient of the post-war strategy of racist terror. In this way, the brutal exploitation of black labour was guaranteed, and after the betrayal of Reconstruction, the political domination of the black people as a whole was assured. 
And that concludes our reading for this week. Next week we'll finish off the chapter, and any thoughts I have will come then. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistgreeting at gmail.com, or get the show on Twitter, at leftistgreeting. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find it and lots of other podcasts there about leftist media like books, movies, anime, video games. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>